Hello, Brain Allies. You're listening to Brains Out Loud, where we talk about important topics surrounding mental health, from our personal lives to our work lives and everywhere in between. Our goal is that through these conversations, we can help others prioritize mental health on an equivalent level to physical health. Today, we are here with Erwin Benedict Valencia, or E, as he's commonly known. E is a well-being expert and polymath, high-performance sports specialist. He's a well-being coach, a community nurturer, a nonprofit founder, a mentor, and a dance ninja. He is the first Filipino raised and educated in the Philippines to be hired on a medical staff of any major U.S. sports team, and in fact, succeeded to do it in both Major League Baseball and the NBA. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Of course, it's my pleasure. So, you founded a company called Kinetic, which you started in Auckland, New Zealand in 2013. This company changed the way that sports medicine workshops and events were done by bringing an element of personal growth and professional development into each of the happenings around the world. You also launched the first ever co-working space curated specifically for sports medicine and sports performance specialists in Gangnam District, Seoul, South Korea. There's obviously a thorough and passionate story behind the motivation for this company. But when was the moment you realized there was a need for it? And who or what gave you the motivation to actually take the idea and turn it into a mission and a company? Wow. Uh, great question. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Juliet, for having me here. I'm truly honored uh, to be a uh, guest here on your podcast and to be able to share some of the insights that I've learned through the experiences that I've had, which is pretty varied. <laughs> so in multiple ways, very, very blessed to live such a life that's filled with experience and uh, that constantly fills my cup. And as I look back on the stories that I've, that I can still continue to tell because of the day, I'm blessed to be here in this moment and healthy to be able to share them. So thank you for having me first and foremost. Yes. Uh, as it relates to Kinetic, Kinetic was born from an idea of how can we continue to serve the population of people that don't have the easy access to, to knowledge and wisdom that is propagated throughout many of the conferences around the world that are high ticket conferences, so to speak. Uh, these conferences have 5,000 people, 10,000 people, where they would fill up these massive rooms and have all these professionals go into these rooms and just learn uh, I've been to so many of these conferences, many of these massive ones. And oftentimes, as, as I look around the crowd, everyone's either looking at their phones, listening in for just key points, and then dropping off, going to the bathroom, or doing something else. They're there to be there, and if they hit a certain point, if they find something that they discover is important to them, then they'll jot it down. Or they're really there to be hanging out with their friends. And so they're gonna go out to hang out with their friends, they're gonna go to these conferences together, and then maybe listen in, but then have a little gossipy in the corner and then head out and get some coffee. And, and, I, and I felt really weird about that because the more I went to them, the more I felt bad for those that I, that, that I met that came from other countries that were underdeveloped, that were developing countries, so to speak. The Philippines being one of them. And obviously I'm very partial to the Philippines because I'm Filipino and I grew up there and, and I was very lucky to have the opportunities that I have here. But... But I, I imagine and also understood what it's like to be somebody that grew, growing up in the Philippines that maybe 
became a physician in the Philippines and, and or maybe a physiotherapist or anyone that went to school there, practiced there because of the financial and economic differences that you would have, trying to get to a conference where you are paying maybe, you know, $1,000 for the ticket to get there, $2,000 to get for the flight to go there, another $1,000 to get to stay at a hotel in Vegas or, or London or something like that. It, it pretty much takes over everything you've ever saved up. And I thought that was such an unfair advantage, particularly because when these, you know, when, when those that are coming from developing countries go there with their own savings, so to speak, they expect like a bigger experience a more closely knit experience. And what happens is they go to these conferences and they just become like a pawn that just moves around with their little badge. And they so want to learn directly from the people they see on stage, but these rooms are so massive that they just sit there and, and they just try to absorb, but then they realize most of the stuff that the expert is talking about is something they can pretty much read in their books, in medical journals, um, or on YouTube or whatever, or Google it. And it made me just feel this sense of like, it's, it's almost an unfair advantage where being there doesn't give you really opportunity that you thought you would have. And so that clicked in my head after particularly going to a conference called AFEST. And AFEST was all about this immersion of where instead of having multiple thousands of people at a little conference, in a sense, you created a hand select amount of people that had the same vision and thought process to push humanity forward. And there's people from different walks of life, people who were entrepreneurs, but also clinicians and experts. And everyone was the same tier. Nobody got the backstage pass. Everybody ate the same lunches and dinners. They were all placed in one little island or whatever. And you really got to meet people and create this experience like you're bonding, especially if somebody that you admire the most. They weren't on stage and whisked off to go to a hotel room, to a private dinner that they'll never be seen ever after giving a talk, but rather they felt like they, there was a community that could ensue. And then if a, if, if a connection occurred between you and this person you admire, then you become lifelong friends. And I said, how can I create that and be able to bring that to, to places around the world with no ready access to it? And so what can I do with my own niche, which is the world of sports medicine and sports medicine education? And so I created kinetic and kinetic became that because kinetic means movement, but also because I put the IQ in the end, it's movement with intelligence. So the moving of intelligence allows you to have that moving in a very socially responsible, but also community driven manner. And so that, that became the, that became the thesis of that me and somebody who I was mentoring, uh, who I met during the world baseball classic in Taiwan. Uh, we kind of co-founded that in Auckland, New Zealand. He was a Kiwi Korean, so he was a Koei, and we built it there. And, you know, one of our first, in a sense, test grounds for not only New Zealand, but also Korea, because we had some connections there. And then for, for about two years, that was something that I did, that we, we gave an, an experience to people, whether that was in Prague and Czech Republic, whether that was in Cambodia. I made sure that when you were, when you were learning about shoulder rehab, that we would have disco music in the background. Uh, I made sure that everybody learned how to do a proper hug before we started. So then you create a better connection with each other and break the ice. 
I made sure that we had themes every day where somebody, uh, like the theme on Sundays were, were Sunshine Sundays, where we encourage everyone to wear something neon um, or flowery so that then you felt that there was no barrier of a guy wearing a suit that needed to be like higher in the food chain than somebody else, but rather we were linear. We were all sharing this experience together. And then on top of that, uh, I made sure that those who really admired the person that I was bringing in, whether we were in Korea, whether it would be uh, anywhere else, is that we hold we held a little contest that allowed that person to have like an assistant slash a mentee for the weekend that grew, and we call that a grasshopper. And that's eventually how Grasshopper Project, which is now my nonprofit, started, which allowed that mentor and mentee have a connection through a three day personal growth experience, but you were still talking about something serious and scientific. That's amazing. What an extensive response and also how much you've done with this initial idea and, and let it grow um, in a capacity that just continues to give and to continues to help people. Um, it's funny because when I think about conferences, I think about what you initially mentioned, a big room with a keynote speaker on stage and everybody just kind of walking around and keeping to themselves and i never thought about the journey that some people take and the effort that they go through to be able to have these networking experiences and as we know networking is such a major part of how people find success they need to have those personal connections with others and i think now especially in a time where everybody is on zoom and we're even more so in the comfort of our own homes and we're even more so isolated, I think it's harder to have those intimate connections with others. So I imagine that conferences like these that actually allow people to connect face-to-face, -face, you know, find a mentor, find a mentee, and, and make these personal connections will be really, really valuable once the world returns to normal again. And that's, that's what we all hope, you know, and to be able to have these personal connections in a more intimate manner um, what I found is one of the things I studied before creating this company was uh, really looking at some of the lear exponential learning um, science that's out there, uh, following some of the models from TED as, as it relates to learning and deciding how many minutes attention spans are, um, looking at Montessori and Waldorf as, as educational systems of how experiential manners allow for people to remember things more, particularly using it from from a very from an early childhood level so that then if you if you can teach something as easily through an experience of a child why not somebody who's 40 50 years old so um, and then everyone gets that experience together yeah that makes a ton of sense that's very very wise and i'm sure it's very helpful to to those who are allowed and capable not allowed but you know i'm sure it's very helpful to those who have the opportunity to be involved so you have an extensive background in regards to your education as well as your career. And I was curious, would you describe yourself as someone who loves school and just loves learning? Or have you seen your education as more of a requirement or a piece of equipment to get you to where you are today in your career? That's a, that's a very good question. I would have to say I'm a hybrid of both. Uh, I think my life has always been being a hybrid as a third culture kid, as somebody that, you know, lived all over the place, who identified as American being in the Philippines. There were so many things that for me, uh, culturally, we, 
you know, we Filipinos and Asians in general have certain requirements that we have to like fill up where you have to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, and then life is successful because you'll have your white picket fence house, your 2.5 kids and your 1.5 puppies. So, but because that's the trend and your car to go with it. But I think I've always been the person that's been a bit of a rebellious with that culture. And so how can I have the best of both worlds where I still make my parents proud and happy, so to speak, but also allow myself to be happy with the passions that I want to fulfill. So education was a means for me to be able to say, stand on solid ground so that as I continue to evolve, I'll be able to say, I've done what's necessarily required to then be thought of as a thought leader and an expert, because not only now do I have the experience that I've gone through these for these many years, but I also have the educational background for it. That said, in order for me to continue wanting to be this thought leader and this expert in the various fields I'm in, I have to be curious. I have to love to learn something new and different that I don't know and be uncomfortable with being somebody who's already good in one thing and then dropping into something else and feel like you're a dummy. Perfect example. I, after 20 years of being a, being a yogi, I just started, I said, you know, during the mid pandemic, I said, you know, I think it's about time for me to get a yoga certification. And it's really funny for me because I've been practicing in the world of physical therapy and sports medicine for, for, for 20 years. And to be able to take these classes of anatomy and I'm like, I kind of know this already, you know, but I need to do due diligence all just using it and seeing it through the lens of a yogi, you know, and not to say like, oh, I know all this stuff already. No, it's like, I almost have to look at it as fresh eyes. Like I've never learned this before. So that curiosity allows me to continue to move forward. But at the same time, having an end goal to each of these curiosities allows me then to pile up these expertise accordingly to be able to be, to be able to have a chance to sit on the table of any one of these organizations that I'd like to be part of. Yeah. I had a conversation recently with someone who told me, uh, this woman, Dr. Sandra Scheinbaum, actually, I did my last podcast episode with her, and she's a brilliant psychologist, and she was explaining to me how our character strengths and our, our, real, our real strengths in life come from not our skills and what we already know how to do, but our curiosity and our fascination for new things. And through that fascination and through that curiosity, we have the ability to connect with others. We have the ability to be vulnerable again. We have the ability to change our perspective of thinking. And that's where our real strengths come from. And, and that reminded me um, of what you just said. So I, I think that's really interesting and a very powerful sentiment in terms of education and allowing yourself to kind of get off your high horse sometimes and say, I actually could learn more about that or actually could approach that in, in a different way that I haven't in the past. And that will bring value to me and value to those who I share further information with. Now, and also, I think that you talk touch upon character strengths. My, my number one character strength is appreciation of beauty and excellence. So I think that blends, to answer that question, is also the blend of both. It's like, you know, excellence means that you have to have the steps in order to gain that excellence and that experience but also that curiosity allows you to look at things in a beautiful manner where each experience is in itself a beautiful moment where then you can add to the growth of who you want to be in the future. Absolutely. I love that. So can you tell me more about where your mindfulness practices and journey began and where it has made the biggest impact in terms of your personal growth and your personal life? 
Um, I, I, absolutely. I, I, as far back as I can remember, the, the practice of mindfulness and meditation particularly that would lead to my mindfulness began at probably the age of seven. It was when I began martial arts and we were required, I think karate was my first martial art, but then I moved to Taekwondo, took that seriously and finished the black belt there. But it was the stillness that we had to do it before we started forms and before we did sparring, we needed to find that stillness. And at that period of time, I was so fascinated with martial arts. My father was a brown belt of karate do in Japan. And, and there's this picture of him with a brown belt that I will never forget that became like my icon that I was going to follow and maybe supersede by being a black belt. Because my father had to leave Japan before testing for his black belt because he was in business school. And the books that my father had at home were all these books on the Bushido, which is the code of the samurai warrior, um, the, you know, um, Art of War by Lao Tzu, the, um, all these things about Shaolin monks and how they would train using lead sandals in order for them to jump up and down in a wet hole to then in turn, when they took those sandals out, they can jump on top of the tree. Because I always wondered how they did this in the Kung Fu movies. My dad would say, oh, that's fake. Yeah, but you have a book that describes the possibility of this happening. So are you saying it's fake because you couldn't do it, but then there's other people that can? And so this curiosity of me, of this mind-body connection and it all started with that stillness to then explode from there and so when martial arts came into my life it really allowed for me to combine these 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 thought processes and so at the age of 12 after i got my black belt my sensei was so happy that i was already a black belt because i was the first one in his lineage his direct lineage because uh, he was a student of somebody else. So he opened a new, a new dojo, so to speak. And, and because I was the first one, he said, oh, uh, Saturday, you're starting class and, and uh, you have to start from the beginning for the meditation, all that stuff. And you're teaching it. So I'll, I'll come in a little late. So imagine he's been waiting for me to get the black belt so that I can start teaching class, which began with meditation. Meanwhile, he was spending Friday night having a happy hour with his friends all night. <laughs> So he would arrive he, that, that morning. I still, to this day, remember what he looked like. Because I would come in. I said, is, is, is sir, is, is, is the sensei here? Oh, the, the secretary would be like, oh, he's not here yet. So just keep on doing. Just keep on teaching class. I was 12 years old. You know, I was teaching class. And some of, my, some of the classmates I had, or some of the classmates I had there were like 18, were 22. And like, you didn't really want to follow a 12-year-old kid. And I said, no, you're, you're doing great. You're doing great. Just, just keep on doing it. And he would show up. If his class would start at 10, it would end at noon. He showed up like at 11.15 with sunglasses on, a gold chain, and some jeans. And I'm like, man, this guy was out last night. And so, which is really funny because then because of the fact that I've been, been leading, there's a sense of like accountability that I had in me where I had to center myself and ground myself, which then I started with learning how to teach people in my class how to meditate. And so I started taking that with me, this thought process of to be a warrior, you also have to find stillness. And this like, this, this two personalities where, you know, as they would say, for anyone that's taking martial arts or MMA, uh, you, once you assert, hit a certain level, you are, you are in a sense a weapon, same with the military, but it's your ability to, to only harness that at the most, needed times that truly makes you a master not just doing it to show off and so I, I think that's 
that thought process has always been in my head and I, I've been blessed with that. Like, well, some people go to ashrams and I've gone to ashrams in India and all that stuff. But the more and more I, I study where my lineage, so to speak, comes from, it comes from martial arts and it become, comes from this warrior mentality uh, where you're silent, but then you have the ability to, to act when and accordingly. And so, yeah, so that, that came there when I was 12, I started teaching this meditation. By 14, I, got, I, was, I was introduced to something called the Silva Method. And this is a funny story because it started with me sitting down at a breakfast table with my family and my dad, starting at the age of, I would say maybe 13, would already sit me, because I was the eldest, sit me and then eventually my brother and my sister uh, for this, this serious talk after brunch. It's the moment my, my father, we're sitting down and everyone's like, hey, brunch is good, brunch is good. My father gets a cigarette, sparks the cigarette. And then he asked the question, so what do you see yourself in five years? At the age of 13, you're getting this. <laughs> and then these serious conversations like, I, I don't know, I'm 13. I just want to play basketball with my friends, you know? But he was like, I want, I want you to start thinking of this in this five, 10 year frames. And it was funny because one of these days when I was 14, I was reading a newspaper in the Manila Bulletin in the Philippines. And I opened to one of these pages and, and, and in one eighth, ad there was an ad there for the silver method and the silver method for those of you that, that don't know out there is kind of like the, one of the first westernized versions of what in a sense this personal growth mindfulness practice was it allowed you to look at it in a more scientific manner it was started by jose silva that was portuguese originally moved to texas and i think he was either a psychologist or a neuro, a neuroscientist or something like that and then he, when he worked with his pair, pair, patients he just kind of couldn't get them better when he went the western way so then he started using eastern type philosophies and and what he did that was successful was that he was the modern day internet marketer he used like kind of avon type techniques by go, hiring regional managers to spread these events and most of them were channeled towards kids and this put a little ad and said increase your brain power get better grades i was sold i was like type a personality <laughs> parents wanted me to be a neurosurgeon when I grew up we're gonna do this so you know I first called and I said how much is gonna cost I didn't have that money that one summer and I asked my parents my parents like what is this a cult you want to join a cult and I was like no mom I just this is like it says it makes me it's gonna make me smarter I was like oh I don't know just study hard you should be good so no I really I think I really feel that this is gonna like make me do better well if you want it save your money and so that Christmas I did what every kid in the Philippines would do in order to gain money, more money than Christmas. I sung and danced at every reunion I could possible. I put my hat down and asked for money. My grandmothers, my titos, my, my uncles, my aunts, I, every for money. And I said, do you want me to dance? Do you want me to sing? What do you, I can entertain you when we tell a joke. You want me to sing poetry? I need this money. And then by the next year, I hustled enough where I was able to pay. And it wasn't that much. It was like $50, $60. But for a 12-year-old kid, right. a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, that was a lot. So I was able to get there that next year when I was 14. And uh, I, I learned how to bend spoons. I learned to, to, to mind map. It was my first ever time to be able to, how can you harness something by just literally like putting your fingers together and be like, get you into that zone the flow state like in an immediate without having to like relax no you just like press these two things and you're like okay i'm there wow. it's like almost hypnotizing myself and and after that 
the Celestine prophecy was given to me by a good friend of mine when I was 16. And that allowed me to then look bigger, scale, coincidences, the world, how to li look life as an adventure by being present in every moment. And then that carried on to the future. Wow. I am amazed by that story. It sounds like you really were introduced to mindfulness and the power that was held and is held within it at a very young age. And I would ask you, you know, something you mentioned earlier in, in terms of your martial arts skills, you defined, you know, being a martial artist and having this black belt almost as identifying yourself as a, a weapon. And you said that the power that came from that was the control of when you would use that and when you would not. And so that brings me back to mindfulness. And my question for you is, do you think that mindfulness and the, the main identity of it would refer to maintaining control of your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions? Is mindfulness really about control? Um, or how would you define mindfulness? Mm, that's, that's a great question. I think, it, in fact, it might be the opposite. It's about being in a state of just being, where you see things around you or you feel things around you, and they don't necessarily control yourself, but it, you control how you react to it. It's your, it's, your, it's your ability or my personal ability to see things and to feel things and make that choice within that moment and say, am I going to react to this? Am I going to control myself, essentially? Or am I just going to, oh, am I going to react accordingly? And if I do react, what am I going to say or how am I going to react to it? It's, it's not necessarily controlling, but it's just being in the moment and then being able to have that decision. And whether you, some people will say that is controlled, I, I think it's more about seeing things and then having that choice and telling yourself what choice you're going to make. And it must have a little bit to do with acceptance too, right? Accepting that what you don't have control over is, is okay and you kind of have to take things as they come um, and your reactions to those things are what you do have control over. So again, that reminds me of another conversation that I recently had with a woman who is a OCD specialist and I suffer from, or I don't wanna say suffer from, I live with OCD, it's obsessive compulsive disorder for anybody in the audience who doesn't know. Um, and OCD is about getting intrusive thoughts or feelings um, then cause anxiety. And then those anxieties turn into compulsions or behaviors in order to soothe those thoughts, which then turns into temporary relief. And I was saying to the psychologist that a lot of my anxiety and my pain surrounding my OCD for the duration of my life was um, surrounding the fact that I didn't understand OCD. I was very scared of it and I didn't have a way to cope with it. And that as I understood what I had and I found coping mechanisms for it, you know, instead of having to obsessively order things or say things, or I would have panic attacks because of the intrusive thoughts, I developed this pattern where I would knock on my stomach a certain amount of times and I would relieve myself of that thought. And I thought that that was a great coping mechanism for me to have. But what she told me is that the real power is getting an intrusive thought or a fear. You know, for example, some obsessive thoughts might occur as 
if I don't do X, Y, and Z, someone that I love will die um, or I will lose my job. And she was saying the real power comes from having those thoughts and saying, okay, well, I have no control over the future. Those things might happen and they might not happen. And all I can do is accept that I will deal with them as they come and I will react as they come if need be. And, you know, that real power comes from that acceptance. And that, you know, again, reminded me of what you just said about it's not about having control, but kind of more so accepting that lack of control and, and giving yourself to the universe and, and seeing things how they come. Yeah, there's a, a, wise, um, a wise coach I had in baseball. I was in baseball for eight years as a head of rehab for the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team. And we had a manager um, named Clint Hurdle, who was an inspiration to me because he was a guy that was all about personal growth and was one of the catalysts for kind of pushing me to, I climbed Kilimanjaro in 2011 to raise money for kids. And I did it on my own by myself with just Sherpas that kind of bring my bags. That's it. And I was inspired by two things, by Clint Hurdle's message where he, he would always say, there's only two things that you can control in this world. It's attitude and effort. And the rest of it, you leave up to the universe. And so that made me kind of just, just think about things in a different light. That and the fact that I was reading and inspired by Blake McCoskey, who wrote the book, Start Something That Matters. He's the guy that, that started Tom's Shoes, where you know he, he was one of the first to think about what social entrepreneurship was, where you can have people buy something in the commercial world, but still be able to give it to somebody else. And so... That may be both of that allowed me to think that not only can I do something good, but by, by consequence, the only thing I can control is the attitude I do in order to make sure that I'm fit enough to do this, but also put all the effort that I can. And you know what? If this inspires people and people want to donate, it's good. If it's not, I'm doing this because it's not about everybody else. It's about the people that I'm trying to support. Right. That's an amazing perspective. And I, I just wrote down the name of that book. I'm definitely going to check it out. So one of my um, questions for you is regarding your social media platform and you share a lot of positive messages and you talk about mindfulness, but something that you stress the importance of a lot is gratitude. And it's no secret that the past year has been extremely hard on everyone due to COVID-19 and the immense amount of sacrifices that the world has had to make in its presence. So why is it so important to practice gratitude? And how can those who are feeling worn down, tired, and I think fairly enough, ungrateful during these times, implement gratitude and practice gratitude in their life despite what they've lost? Yeah, thank you for, for, for noticing that and, and for stressing that, yes, it is, it is all over the place in, in my world. And the funny story about daily gratitude and what now is Sunday gratitude that I have that I put together every Sundays is uh, the funny story of how that came about is I've always been somebody that's been grateful. I, I was one of the lucky ones growing up in the Philippines. You don't know how you're going to be raised. You, you, you know, it's almost like a lottery. You either a be born in, in one of the more challenging situations or you're born in a more slightly advantageous situation. I mean, all of us around the world, but in the Philippines, it's stark. You could very well have a nice big house with big walls and right outside your door, you have shanties and people are living in squatters, but that's the reality of it. And so as I went to school, I went to the University of the Philippines there 
and it was it was the world it's the it's the country's biggest public school, and I had a lot of classmates that that wore flip flops and and stuff not because it was a fashion statement but because it was the only thing they could afford. I was only one of three people in my class, and we had like a block class for physical therapy. There's 50 of us. Only one of three people that had a car when we were in college. Everyone else had public transportation. You had to respect that no matter how crazy the weather was, flooding, everything, people still showed up to school. And it was a choice for them to still wake up in the morning earlier if they needed to in order to get to school. And and I always said I was one of the lucky ones that 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 maybe I didn't have to go through that struggle. So I will honor them by matching them, by making sure that I show up fully as well, not just to support them with any challenge that they have. None of them are charities, but show up as much as they do. So that you're, you're iron sharp with iron. So that then you can like push yourself and level each other up. And so I've always been, I've always been reminded, uh, particularly my mom worked with a lot of people uh, from, from the autistic uh, population, opening centers uh, within our village to helping with the community. And I just saw how grateful people were by simple acts of kindness that my mother would do. And so ever since I was young, it's part of the culture that we have from my house. And so uh, a number of years back, I had a girlfriend that held me accountable to that. And she would, whether we were together or not, she would call me and text me and said, hey, what are the three things you're grateful for today? And I was like, first I was, Annoyed, I was like, you know, I've always been grateful. You know, I'm always in gratitude. It's like, why do you have to ask me that? No, because I want to know what is it specifically at this moment in time that you're that you're grateful for. Because you change, it changes every day, and I want to make sure that it becomes a habit for you. And so this is something we did on a regular basis. And then after about a, uh, and then after about a year or so, we we ended up breaking up ironically on Valentine's Day, and it, that that lifeline something was cut off. And so I asked myself, how can I continue this practice? and be able to like live in this accountability without that person reminding me, then let me remind myself and be held accountable by the people that are around me, AKA the social media world. And so uh, this was 2015 or 16 that this happened, uh, you know, in March, you know, after two weeks of us breaking up, I said, I'm just gonna continue this. So ever since of March, 2015 or 2016, I know it's been more than five years and it's almost six years now that I've been doing this and just, you know, giving gratitude every day. That's why it's called daily gratitude. And so ironically, as I continue to do the research, I, I've started doing research for four years on the science of gratitude. And what I found out more than anything else is that gratitude is the only value that has no negative counterpart. You can say ungrateful. Yeah, but it doesn't give you negativity. You're just saying like, oh, you're ungrateful, but Still, the word grateful makes you still feel good. It's the only word or value that when you're in present in the moment in gratitude, there's no other negative connotation that can enter your system. Your mind is already set for that. You can say, oh, I'm happy, but I can be sad too because I'm sad for you and I can be happy for it. I can be angry, you know, but deep inside, I feel like, I feel, I, I feel like almost sorrow for you because I have anger inside of me. I still feel that there's still... But when you're in the, the present moment, when you're feeling and you're living in the gratitude moment, there's no opposite of it. There's no polar opposite of it. So I feel that it's one of the greatest values that anyone can be and live in. And once you create that as part of your habit and you begin each day with gratitude, it allows you to then live every moment like you can, like knowing that there's only two things you can control, which is attitude and effort. 
now you've set your attitude up because you're grateful. And then now everything that you do doesn't even have to have effort because it's flowing through you. And now you're in a state of flourishing. Yeah. Wow. I've never thought about it that way. And when I think about that and, you know, why do we write down the things that we're grateful for? Why is it important to talk about what we're grateful for? I think for me and my experience, you know, it's something that I never did until the past, let's say, honestly, it might've even been when the pandemic hit, I started really researching what are ways that I can help other people? What are ways that I was writing articles about how to stay resilient during this time and practices that we could manage and you know, gratitude was something that came up a lot in my research and working in the suicide world and, you know, working in the mental health industry where we're actively trying to prevent suicide and intervene in crises where people are feeling suicidal. I think something that has been really interesting for me to learn is that if you ask people what they're grateful for, most likely, even if their initial response is, I don't have anything to be grateful for, I don't have anything you know, to live for or whatever, you ask them again. And if you sit there and, and help them come up with ideas, gratitude will also be aligned with, you know, a will to live. And if you can mm -hmm. find things that you're grateful for, that means there are positives in your life, whether it's something that you are proud of yourself, that you're grateful that you had the opportunity to earn or have or learn, or you're, you know, you're grateful for someone around you, it kind of reminds you that you have reasons to keep going, you have reasons to move on. And even if you're gonna have a shitty day or even if you're gonna have a shitty week or month or year, there's something that's keeping you here and there's something that's worth staying for. Um, and so I think that ever since I started writing down every day what I was grateful for, it made the negativity that was in my life just a little bit more dull. I mean, it's mm. not gonna cure my depression, it's not gonna push my anxiety away forever, but it gives me something to hold on to. And I think that that's really meaningful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it has been wonderful having you here today on Brains Out Loud. And before you go, I would love to have you share with our audience how they can follow up with you, stay in touch with you. Um, would you share with us your social media platform or a website, any way that they can follow you on this journey and get more of your amazing wisdom and experience in their lives. Oh, thank you for, for allowing me to do that. Um, allowing me to share. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me here in the mental health global network. I know you guys are doing some amazing work and the future that you have to be able to continue to up level what you can do and scale is, is, is going to be amazing to be a witness to. So thank you for, for doing that more than anything else. And, and the network, uh, yes, you can find me on my website at Irwin, E-R-W-I-N, valencia.com uh, you can sign up to a newsletter that i have it's usually uh some fun little things that are occurring and then little notes on my life that sometimes are awkward but fun at the same time or things that i'm involved with that hopefully then inspires people just to know that i'm a normal person uh, speaking of being a normal person uh i'm normally a normal person when it comes to social media i try to launch um every sunday uh, some some podcast like thing that i put together some videos that i've taken in the past uh, where I've asked, I've asked some of my friends uh, and people that I know uh, what sim the simple word of what they're grateful for and why. And it's done really well, not just for my own soul and heart to be able to have them have the same accountability that, that I've taken for myself, uh, but also have them share 
some things that often that people don't even know about. So that happens usually every Sunday. Just check on my Instagram and, and stuff and, and or on you, my YouTube channel that, uh, uh, that yes, if you can support my YouTube channel, I haven't even got to the point that, that I can get hundred subscribers to get my name on it. <laughs> just because it wasn't really a focus of mine. It just, it was just a thing that was out there and I'm not really focused on it. But if you want the long versions of all these kind of interviews that I've had, you can check them out there, but also I've just launched a couple of shorts uh, because season two is coming up uh, next month where I'm going to have more people coming in and share what they're grateful for in simple, in a simple way. Uh, and also uh, if you have any questions, anything that has to do with the science or the art of gratitude, uh, feel free to either DM me on Instagram at Erwin D. Valencia or find me on any other socials so on Twitter, on Clubhouse, uh, on anywhere else. And you know, speaking of which, yes, uh, if you if you want to continue feeling uh, gratitude and be able to share that, be part of the Gratitude Gang on Clubhouse, where every Sunday we do Sunday gratitude sessions as well, where it's like an extravaganza where we have music musicians come in and play some music at the beginning and at the end uh we do gratitude go arounds and we choose a topic like manifestation or something like that so uh feel free to join there and, and ping me and be part of the gang amazing thank you so much for sharing that with us and i encourage our listeners to actually follow up follow through because listening to why other people are grateful will hold you accountable to find gratitude in your life so it has been so wonderful speaking with you today and thank you everybody who has joined us and we'll be in touch next week.